What is up, y'all? My name is Kristen, and welcome to the Red Rum and Red Wine Podcast. We are ready for a well, uh, 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 a rough one today, folks. I yeah, don't even want to talk about it. That's how rough it is. Um, for those who are just clicking on for the first time, hello. This is a true crime, uh, drunk mystery and history, whatever we think is like fucked up and want to talk about podcast. And I typically have a lovely co-host uh, by the name of Sarah that joins me, but it's just me for today, and I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. Uh, it is late at night, I'm alone, and this case is unsolved, which adds. So I, let's just dive in and talk about it. Um, really prepare yourselves. Major, major, major trigger warning. Check the content, no, show notes down below. Uh, this case involves children, including newborns, and it involves sexual mutilation as well. So this is, again, a really rough case. If you are not into those kind of cases, please click off. Do not blame you. But for those that are ready to hear about it, let's go ahead and talk about the Dardine family. Now for this case, I am taking us to Illinois. Ina, Illinois, to be exact. And this is, I want to say textbook definition of a small town. Like, we talk about small town a lot. Ina, Illinois, has one stoplight in the whole entire town. And if that doesn't convince you, the population was around, like, 2,300 in the early 2000s, I want to say. So, extremely, extremely small town. But within that small town, you have a very, I guess you would say, typical family, the Dardine family. Uh, If there is one thing you do, I really suggest you look up a photo of this family. Like, it is the stash on Mr. Dardine. Thick mama. It's a typical 80s stash. Like, it's amazing. It is what you would describe peak family stash 80s family go cocaine go except they don't do cocaine they're they're really straight up they are very not like me russell keith dardine was 29 years old and he met his wife 30 year old rudy elaine dardine and they got married in 1979 now they both went by their middle name so i'm going to be referring to them as keith and elaine throughout the story But a few years after they got married, you know, typical life behavior, they went on to have a then three-year-old son at the time, Peter, and they were expecting a child at the time, either a girl that they were going to name Casey or a boy that they were going to name Ian. But uh, I do believe she, uh, Elaine, was around seven to eight months pregnant at the time of this case. Now, Keith had actually recently bought a trailer for his family in order to celebrate him finishing the training for a new job that he had gotten at a local treatment plant in Ina, Illinois. 
and this happened in the year 1986. They had rented some property out by a farming couple right off of Route 37. As for Elaine, she got a job working at an office supply store in Mount Vernon, and the couple and family as a whole was very active in the town's Baptist church. Keith was known to be one of the lead singers in the church's choir, and Elaine loved playing piano for the choir any chance they got. But even though this is a super small town and you would think that it would be more mundane and monotonous, it was kind of far from that. Uh, I think Keith was rather shocked when he moved his family to Ina and found that at least the county that he lived in was super prone to violence. And when I say super, so we have a population of like maybe 23 to 2600 and is what it varied in articles. They experienced 15 homicides over the past two years in Jefferson County. So make with that information what you will, but that was enough. I I want to say like a few months before this incident that I'm about to talk about happens, like a 10-year-old had just went missing. And not long before that, a son had actually committed a violent crime against the entire family, basically like wiping them out. So it it is violent enough crime to raise eyebrows, to have the neighbors talking, to have everyone in the town talking, and definitely to have this father who has a three-year-old and then a baby on the way to think that, hey, this probably is not the place that I need to be living in. In fact, Joanne Dardeen, Keith's mom, said that whenever she went over to the house to visit, which uh, she lived in Mount Carmel, which was about a 45-minute to like an hour drive away, but she would often go and visit the family. And when she went over to go visit, more times than not, they ended up talking about the murders. In fact, like very much like all of us listening to this podcast episode, Joanne and Keith were super, I guess, murderinos, you would call. Uh, Joanne would even say, I know you think it's crazy, even though, like, to us, girl, no, it's not. But she would tell KMOV news station that me and him were really into a lot of the murder cases and knowing that these things happen to people. And we would often sit there and talk about it whenever we would call. He, whenever we would hop on the phone, we would end up having our conversations go to whatever crime was occurring within the community. And after only living there a year, there was enough crime going on where they were like, this is more than we are wanting to handle. And even though they had only lived here a year, it was enough crime for the family to say, you know what, we're okay with this. We're actually going to put the trailer home up for sale. We don't want to live in this area. The family was so paranoid and kind of superstitious. I mean, rightfully so, but there was even an instance where it was said to be a few days prior to what I'm about to say happens, but a young woman had apparently approached the mobile home and asked if she could go inside and make a phone call to 
help her out of whatever situation she was spewing, and Keith flat out refused her. She, he said, no way, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sure you may need help, but I just am not the person to help you out. He was way too paranoid and thinking that something could potentially go wrong. He slammed the door on her, and I mean, like... I in the 80s probably unheard of and that's so crazy like it said later on that a lot of these neighbors had their doors unlocked but 2022 yeah common knowledge if someone knocks on my door there was one time I was driving to meet a friend and there was a guy on the side of the road just like begging he did the little prayer signs and I was like sorry dude one what can I as a woman do I'm sorry but I'm stereotypical I don't know how to change a tire and two I'm not going to pull over and help you because you might kidnap me like it's just you you gotta understand tis the times so yeah Keith slammed the door he was way too paranoid to help to it sounds bad, but he just, like, didn't feel like helping her out, rightfully so, because all of this crime is going on in the area. And because of this, he told his mom, you know, I don't have a job lined up, but we're going to move to Mount Carmel, where, I really hope I'm saying that right, where y'all live. Uh, we are going to move by January. Like, I don't care if I have a job or not. We're going to move there we'll figure it out. We'll live with you for a while. Like, it doesn't matter. We will figure it out. We just do not want to live in this area anymore. January, the latest, we will live here. And then the night of November 17th, 1987 occurs. Workers at the treatment plant had noticed that one of their most reliable workers, Keith Dardine, had yet to show up for his Tuesday night shift at the Rend Lake Water Conservatory District where he had worked. Keith hadn't warned anyone that he was going to be out of work or would be running late. And when Keith's supervisors tried reaching out to the Dardeen household, all of the calls went straight to voicemail. This really started to worry Keith's supervisor. Uh, I read in one article that he called a neighbor and asked them to check on the house, and they said that no one was answering. I'm not really sure how true that is, but what does end up happening for sure is that supervisor ends up calling Keith's parents and asking if they had heard anything from their sons or the Dardines in general. Confused because Joanne had actually just seen Keith the week prior stated that she hadn't heard anything from them and actually began to worry that, okay, if no one is answering the house, then that's actually kind of odd. I think at this point, we need to reach out to police. And so at this point, they call, go ahead and they call Jefferson County Police. And during the phone call, Keith's father would agree to drive the 45 minutes down to Ina the following morning and meet officials with a copy of the key that would open the mobile home. And so on November 18th of 6.30 p.m., Keith's father and officials from Jefferson County Station would go down to the Dardine household to do a welfare check. Now again, like I said, uh, this is one of the roughest cases that I have talked about and we're about to get into those reasons why. So, uh, yeah, guys, just prepare yourselves. So when officers would knock on the door, there would be no answer. 
from there in one article I read that officers would go ahead and try light through the back door and the back door was said to be unlocked and from there officers would enter the household and discover something that you need therapy for life for. Uh, inside of the household on top of their Elaine and Keith's waterbed laid three bodies tucked into the bed. Both Elaine and Peter were found in the bed, bound and gagged with duct tape, and had obvious signs of being severely beaten. Later in the autopsy, it was shown that three-year-old Peter had suffered multiple abrasions and contusions, as well as a fracture to his skull. While Elaine, who had still had about two months left in her pregnancy, had suffered large blows to the right side of her head, which had, in fact, ended up fracturing her skull. It is unclear whether Elaine was alive or not when this occurred, but at some point... She had been so brutally attacked that she ended up going into labor and actually giving birth to a baby girl. The killer would then do one of the most unthinkable acts that could happen in mankind and take the baseball bat that had been used to kill Elaine and Peter and turned it on the newborn baby girl, ultimately beating this infant to death. The bat that the killer had used had actually been found to be a birthday gift from Keith to his son Peter, and was actually given to Peter earlier that same year. One of the officers on the scene, Bill Reed, stated that it was gut-wrenching to think, you know, that Elaine and Peter were dead. It was gut-wrenching not knowing where Keith was, you know. Because, as far as everyone could see, Keith Dardine was nowhere to be found on this crime scene. And... Actually, upon arriving to the Dardine household, the one of the first things that investigators had noticed upon arriving to the house was that Keith's truck had been missing. Police automatically assumed the worst, while shocked family and friends thought that there was no way in hell that Russell Keith Dardine did anything had anything to do with the death of his family and just outright refused to believe that he was the one that did this. But with really no other option, and I'm like not trying to shit on investigators, obviously you walk into a crime scene, the husband is the first one missing. The first, that, that's common knowledge, the husband then did it or the spouse did it. That's the first person that you look at. So with Keith's body missing, with the car missing, they had no other lead to go on but to look for Keith Dardine and basically ask him what happened to his family. A team was immediately assembled and the search for Keith began, but 
just one day later, the search would abruptly end, and I'm not really sure that investigators were really prepared, or anyone for that matter was prepared for what they were meant to find. Because on November 19th of 1987, the body of Keith Dardine would be discovered by a group of hunters in a wheat field about a mile away from the family's mobile home. An autopsy would show that Keith had been shot three times in the face with entry marks located in his skull, right side of his face, and his left cheek. And again, there is a major trigger warning here. Keith's penis was found to be removed on scene. Now, I will say here, like, I will not even say the title of the book. One, because I don't remember it, but two, they don't fucking deserve it. A lot of the reviews on it were saying that they were being disrespectful with other families and getting facts incorrect, which I believe they got a lot of facts with this family murder uh, incorrect. You'll find kind of when you do research on this case that a lot of evidence or a lot of people will say that Elaine was sexually assaulted or she was sexually mutilated. Um, But from what I could tell, truth-wise, not to make money on a good story-wise, the truth seems that Elaine was really just assaulted. She wasn't sexually assaulted and murdered. I know I'm using the wrong terms and I'm so sorry, but I I hope you kind of get what I mean. Like, nothing sexually was done to her. Any type of sexual mutilation really just seems to have occurred with Keith Dardine. To me, this almost screams like a fair or like we go on to say, like, maybe someone's trying to send a message, but either way, from what I could tell, it was really only done with Keith. Uh, Nothing was really done with Elaine, but yeah, if you do look up this case, unfortunately, there are a lot of uh, articles, not a lot, thankfully, but there were a few articles and one really bad book that I came across that um, just really tried to paint a picture inaccurately. So, hope I got that out correct, because I went off note with that, but it is, it was unclear if the mutilation that occurred with Keith occurred before or after his death, but what they were able to find is that ultimately the family lost their lives within about an hour of each other. And the autopsy, I believe, would say that they had died a day prior to them being discovered on the 18th. The 18th was a Wednesday. Keith had, so Keith had missed work Tuesday night. It was said in one article that I believe they had paychecks that went out on Monday and Keith didn't show up to collect the paycheck. But if you're going to work, Tuesday night, like, I can totally see you not wanting to go in and collect the paycheck, like, that, uh, it's not a red flag to me, but it was said that Tuesday night, it was said that he needed to go into work. Wednesday is when they discovered the bodies, but it's suspected that sometime on Tuesday, they were killed. 
The car was nowhere to be found near or around the wheat field and wouldn't actually be found until the next day. And kind of eerie, kind of, I really don't know what to think about this. It was found just 10 miles south of where Keith's body was located, and it was found right in front of Benton Police Department. And this police department is also located right next to Franklin County Courthouse, which I, 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 we get into a theory later about this, but it is almost kind of weird. Like, it, it does seem like a message is almost trying to be sent with, you're leaving a huge piece of evidence right in front of a police department. Like, that is a ha-ha kind of act. It's not, I don't know, it's one, ballsy, and two, yeah, I really don't know why someone would do that other than to leave some kind of message. Like, I don't think that this person randomly decided, oh, this police station is the perfect spot to leave this car that we later find out has copious amounts of blood in it, and it's Keith's blood, and it, it, yeah, so it, we get the point. Investigators kind of think that Keith may have possibly died in this car, I'm going to tell you right now, we it's unsolved, so we I don't know detail for detail what happened. Uh, I couldn't find if there were any, like, kind of bullet holes in the car to maybe validate the theory that he was killed in the car, uh, but I was able to find information on a large amount of blood spatter that did lead investigators to believe that, but I mean, if, if he was shot outside of the car and then drove somewhere a mile... Um, you would obviously bleed a lot in the car, but I also did read in one article that made a valid point saying that the killer wouldn't, I guess, shoot them outside of the car, carry his body, because you kind of see, like, he gained a little bit of dad weight from, like, when Peter was a baby to when Peter was a three-year-old. He got some dad weight, so, like, you don't want to carry him limp biscuit into the car. You probably want him to willingly go into the car and then you shoot him and then maybe take him out into the field. It, I don't know. You kind of have to carry him either way. So I'm not an investigator, guys. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm trying the best I can. This case is really, I don't know. I, I kind of think aloud sometimes when I say it out loud. It's a lot easier to go on a tangent when I'm not taking notes. So because of this case, rumors go within this town. It's it's a small town, obviously, so people are gripped with fear. It is said that the gun, <laughs> the rate of the gun purchases in the town went up, security system purchases went up. I read in one article, though I don't, it, it was like a copy and paste of a news article that I couldn't get access to because I'm a cheap-ass bitch and I'm not going to pay $4 to. So I don't know how true the copy and paste is, but it was talking about how one person went to, like, the community doctor and had lost, like, 15 pounds because they couldn't eat because they were so worried that someone was going to come in and kill them. Because uh, if something, like, this, ha I mean, I, I'm doing notes on this case at night by myself, and I have a ring light, and I'm probably gonna go to sleep with this ring light. Like, it, it's a fucking 
scary case. It's unsolved. And I'm I'm getting to it, but it's like there's no <laughs> there's no leads. It's very random. If I were to hear that my neighbor my neighbor's whole family was annihilated in this way, rightfully so, I'd be fucking worried. This was very much a community where everyone knew everyone, so doors were unlocked. People didn't care. People were very like not oh probably like aware of what was really going on and after this everyone began locking the doors they said like if their car broke down they would rather walk to the next town over and try and hitchhike than like take a ride from someone in that town like the trust and the community feeling was very much skewed was very much fucked was very much just completely gone after this event and detectives felt a lot of pressure to probably get this solved. They immediately, I didn't even know Ina had 30 detectives, probably had to get some from out of town, but they immediately put 30 detectives on this case full time. And they had, they started off with investigators interviewing over 100 people and they tracked down over 1000 leads, like crazy leads I saw from one you know, like angry coworker tracking them down and seeing if that had anything to do with it to just like anything that could potentially lead to this family maybe not being liked, to someone potentially holding a grudge or something that would make them want to murder this family. They had nearly 150 items throughout the crime scene that would be labeled and taken to the lab for testing and Jefferson County would even later on go as far as sharing their files with the FBI cold case unit. But if you couldn't tell from the words cold case unit, even to this day, this case is cold. We have no idea what truly happened to the Dardeen family that night. When investigators took a look inside of the Dardeen home after the crime was committed, they found no immediate signs of burglary or advanced signs of burglary. Like, there were no signs of burglary. Everything was in its rightful spot. There were very obvious items that you would steal if you were a burglar. Like, you had jewelry. There was a video camera. You had cash that were left out in the open and completely untouched. Again, there were no four signs of back entry, but like I said, the back door was remain like left unlocked. And police did find a small, a small amount of marijuana inside of the mobile home. But one, I don't think it had anything to do with the crime. They went down a possible route of like, oh, maybe Keith and Aline were dealers. Like, I don't know about that, because like if if I were murdered police would find like maybe a small dispensary in my house. So I, I don't think that it had anything to do with the crime. Uh, but one thing that I did find very interesting was in one article, it said that when an autopsy was performed, like a toxol, right? Toxology report, uh, they actually didn't find any drugs in the couple system. And this actually led Joanne and investigators to potentially believe that this may have been, like, the killer's marijuana, which I don't know why you would leave marijuana on a crime scene, but I also don't know why someone would commit this crime. So it it's um, 
kind of like a big question mark there, but it very well could have been Keith and Elaine's and they were just, you know, fucking 80s smoking pot. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, But one thing that was said was even though the killer didn't, you know, steal anything, it didn't look like an outright burglary, there was signs of them trying to clean up the blood and obviously they really weirdly took the time to tuck the bodies in, which maybe either show signs of remorse or maybe it was their attempt again at cleaning up. I don't know. It's very, I just, I don't know. I I can't get in this mindset. So it's hard for me to think of kind of the options of like what happened. It's just very mind blowing to me. I don't know. Like I had suspected when I first read this case, uh, I automatically assumed, oh, extramarital affair, someone is doing something sketchy. There's, like, a huge amount of hate here that typically will come from loving someone. But from what investigators could find, there were no signs of any extramarital affairs taking place on either side, Elaine or Keith. And I, when I say they... They tracked down a lot of leads. One, this is a small town, so you know that it is people fucking talk. If they know anything, they talk. And I would say, if not within the first year or so, at least 20 years later, someone would have talked. So no one has said anything. It's very weird at that, but they really did try every nook and cranny. There were some Astaka sports scores that were found inside of the household, and so police saw that and they were like, oh, maybe it's a gambling score, a gambling debt, you know, like someone came out and killed him for money and they couldn't find anything with that. The mom also attested like Keith bought Peter's college fund by selling like 50 cent cans of soda at his work. So like, no, he rubs every penny he has, like his little two pennies together. I don't fucking know the saying, but he is really cheap and I don't think that this gambling debt thing has anything to do with it and investigators weren't able to find anything. They would even go as far as saying well maybe the sexual mutilation had something to do with a cult-like crime or even like the killing of the newborn Casey but there were no satanic symbols and at the same time I just feel like it's such a 70s 80s thing is the first thing you want to say is oh a cult did it but it it, there were just really no hints to it Uh, a lot of people in the town liked to whisper about it but again it's just people trying to I don't know make their lives seem more interesting because they're fucking boring but Even after following all of these leads, interviewing all of these people, there was nothing of sustenance that these investigators could find to help the case. And eventually, I mean, it it just went cold. There was really nothing that they could do about it. Uh, No one was offering any helpful information. And this was obviously not due to a lack of Joanne trying, Keith's mom, This tough mama bear would go as far as gathering over 3,000 signatures in order to have her family story be told on the Oprah Winfrey show. I don't know if you've heard of her, but she's pretty big. 
Uh, but ultimately, producers would turn Joanne down and state that her family's crime was too heinous to show for daytime television. And it is really fucked up, but you see it is actually a really common theme throughout this case. It was hard for, like, news broadcasters or, I guess, places to talk about this story. And it was a case that didn't get a lot of publicity at the time because of what happened to this family and how horrendous and horrible it actually was. So they looked at that and they said, ooh, that sucks. That actually sucks way too much for us to talk about. So you're just going to have to sit in that suckiness and we're not going to help you live with it. Thankfully, by 1998, about 11 years after this case occurred, they were able to get a segment on America's Most Wanted. But unfortunately, when the episode aired, it really didn't lead to anything or to any new evidence for them to follow. And I'm not kidding when I say they really took every lead. Like, they... I don't know if they thought Henry Lee Lucas did it, but they were, like, talking about him. They even looked into the possibility of the Dardines being a victim of serial killer Angel Matarino Resendez, which, if you are new, then you don't know. Check a few episodes back. Sarah actually did a two-parter on him, so I thought that that was really crazy that it's kind of full circle. They're trying to tie him, but... They weren't able to connect anything. The only promising lead that I was able to find that came from this case came from a serial killer that I honestly may have to do a case on because when I read his story, it's it's something. Um, So in 2000, we have a serial killer by the name of Tommy Lynn Sells that confesses to officials that he is the murderer of the Dardine family. Tommy had actually just been arrested and sentenced to death row for the murder of 13-year-old Kayleen Harris. On December 31st of 1999, he had sexually assaulted and stabbed Kayleen multiple times and afterwards split the throat of 10-year-old Crystal Searles. Now, Crystal actually ended up surviving. Literally insane. She walked a quarter of a mile to a neighbor's house and would survive. And ultimately would give officers the sketch that would be used to help capture, arrest, and sentence Tommy to death row. So, a round of applause to Crystal. Thank you very much. (laughs) Ten years old. You, oh my god, I I need to do more. Thank you, Crystal. That is, I can't, that's insane. Ten years old. But once Tommy was caught, he would do that whole dance that killers like to do where he would brag that there are up to 70 other unsolved cases that he committed that they don't know about. 
Now, when he started talking to authorities, there were some, it was like 12 to 22, I know that is a really big range, I'm so sorry, but there were around 12 to 22 cases that uh, Tommy mentioned that they were actually able to pin to the Dardeen, or not to the Dardeen family, uh, that they were able to pin to, you know, Tommy actually committing, so these were murders that were verified, But when it came to the murder of the Dardeen family, it was a little bit different. He really couldn't seem to get his story straight whenever he told it. He would say that Tommy had met Keith in 1987 at a truck stop, or he would later say a pool hall. You know, they would end up chatting, having a good time. Keith would end up inviting Tommy over for dinner. And at some point, while Keith and Tommy were having dinner, Keith would proposition a three-way with his pregnant wife, Elaine. This quote-unquote proposition would really anger Tommy, and in his words, he would force Keith to a field where his body would be found, and he would kill and mutilate him before going back to Elaine and Peter and kill them for being witnesses to the crime. After confessing to this, authorities would try to press harder on facts about the case that weren't released to the press, because from what they were gathering from this interview was that Tommy was really nailing the head on the hammer with facts that were released to the press, but when it came to stuff that they were asking outside of that, he was kind of messing up. Like, They had asked something about Elaine's position of her body, and Tommy was like, oh, it was this way. And then I guess when he didn't get the proper reaction that he wanted, he said, no, 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 it's this way. And then he would guess it correctly. So it's, I don't want to say, like, maybe he's guessing. I, I, maybe it's me being a stoner, but, like, I totally understand if you're not able to remember something that happened years ago. This was 1987 when the Dardines were murdered, and he is getting interviewed in 2000, I believe. So some time has passed, but the inconsistency with the stories and the fact that he was really only mentioning correctly facts that were put in the newspaper was really setting off investigators and they were thinking you know I don't really think that this is our guy until Tommy mentioned one thing that sets this lead apart from any other lead that we may have on this case and that is a set of watermelon ceramics. This is a set of watermelon ceramics that were said to be found inside of the Dardeen home at the time of the murder. Uh, I don't think it is has nothing to do with the scene of the crime. Like, it wasn't a murder weapon or anything. These were just ceramics that were on a nice shelf, some nice decoration that was around the house at the time. And at some point during one of these interviews, Tommy Sells says, Hey, by the way, I saw these watermelon ceramics inside of the house. Now, this was a detail that investigators never mentioned to anyone. And when Tommy said this, it really shifted the perspective of, 
I don't really think he did it to, oh, shit. Okay, actually, he might have really, like, 99% sure he may have had something to do with this. Tommy would even try to maybe persuade, or I believe, like, officers were trying to get him there, too, but he would try to say, like, hey, if you get me to Illinois, I can walk you to some real significant evidence if you let me. But by the time that this had happened, Tommy had already been sentenced to death row for the crime that he had committed in Texas, and Texas has a law that forbids any death row inmates from leaving the state. So Tommy was never allowed to leave and lead investigators to this, you know, like, insane piece of evidence. But at the same time, there was a lot of rumor that Tommy was really just saying, like, oh, I committed these famous murders because if I admit that I committed them, then it will put off my death sentence because investigators are going to spend so much time trying to figure out, you know, if I really did it or not. And um, one thing that was, (laughs) it's really fucked up, but I guess it's interesting to say and to point out is that uh, one, I don't know if they were an investigator or what, but someone had pointed out that in the end, if let's say there had been a really solid piece, like maybe some DNA evidence that tied Tommy to the scene of the Dardine family slaying, probably (laughs) wouldn't have been enough for them to like charge Tommy with it. Like, they probably wouldn't have ended up charging Tommy in Illinois for the crime. It kind of would have just been that thing of, like, oh, well, the evidence says, but justice-wise, we're not going to do anything about it because, technically, Tommy's already on death row for this crime. He committed it. I believe it was in uh, Del Rio. I'm so sorry if that's incorrect, but somewhere in Texas. And... That's why the justice lady is blindfolded because it's it's really fucked up, but that's kind of like what investigators were saying. Like either he's lying, but even if he isn't lying, it doesn't really matter because we probably wouldn't charge him because he's already committed super heinous crimes that we could definitely charge him for and he has been charged for, so yeah. You would have uh, <laughs> you would have Bill Clutter of the Investigation Inter- Innocence Project actually have an opportunity to interview Tommy. And one interesting thing that did come of this uh, was that whilst interviewing Tommy, Tommy would state that ultimately the Dardine family was targeted and that if the Illinois officers took the time to search the woods near the trailer, they would have found a pile of beer cans where Tommy had actually sat and prowled, hunted, stalked the Dardine home. In Clutter's mind, after interviewing Tommy, this was very much seal the deal. Tommy Sells was a guilty man. Tommy would also at some point recant his statements about how he had originally met Keith Dardine and told Bill Clutter or officials that really the real reason that he was in Ina and that he was stalking 
the Dardines was for organized crime. Um, there was a wild, wild, I tried, I, I really did try to dig, uh, but there were federal prosecutors in Ina, I believe at that courthouse that was right where Keith's car was found, there was a drug conspiracy charge or trial that was going on at the courthouse right outside of where Keith's car was found. And so really what Joanne, Keith's mom, thinks and maybe one of the theories of what potentially happened is that either, and maybe why the marijuana was in the house, is that they either had asked Keith to do something maybe drug-related, they wanted a favor from him, or they were maybe pressuring him to do something, and Keith at the end of the day denied it. Either that or Joanne says maybe like someone in Elaine's past that she was denying and, you know, they couldn't take no for an answer, so... But either way, Sells was put to death on April 3rd of 2014 by lethal injection some 22 years after the death of the Dardine family. And honestly, when it comes to this lead, I wasn't, I'm still really not entirely sure what to think. Uh, when I think of Tommy Sells, I, I really didn't think of him as someone who could commit this crime. Um, there were strong points when I looked into his past that would say maybe he would be guilty. There was a crime that was committed on July 27th of 1985 where Tommy Sells would actually wind up killing a four-year-old boy and his mother with the son's baseball bat. So he claims that he killed the four-year-old because the four-year-old was somehow a potential witness, but it the similarities between the crimes show you that one, he this is something that he could potentially have done, but I, I don't know how I feel about the Tommy Sells theory. It may be, I mean, it, it's the strongest one that we have at this point. It's, ooh, it, if you were to ask me, my first thoughts when reading the case were either it's an affair because it requires such a, like, copious amount of hate to not only wipe out a family, but to wipe out a newborn. It's just, it's, not every human is capable of that, and there were actually statistics that I didn't write in here, um, but actually I was reading about, I'm gonna get it wrong because I'm doing it off of the top of my head, but a far amount of criminals do not kill young children. So when you have, when you're dealing with a criminal or a killer that kills young children, it is a nearly a, one small percentage, two, it's a different ball game. So it, it's either a message or it is a pure hate, crime of hate, but like not in a hate crime kind of, oh, you know what I mean. <laughs> I'm a little wine drunk right now. I have to be to say what I just said, but as of 2022, the case remains under the care of Captain Bobby Wallace. Uh, he is currently the fourth person to reside over this case, and of it, he states, to me, when you solve cold cases, it's going to be more from the evidence than the people. 
from what I've seen of something that serious, I would think one of two things that could come to mind personally. Either A, send a clear message to somebody, or it was extremely personal. As for Keith's mother, Joanne, she never, ever, don't think for a second that she ever stopped fighting for her son or her grandson or her daughter-in-law's case. She called the police nearly every day of the first year of her son's case trying to figure out what exactly happened. Like, she had an extremely close relationship with one of the first investigators, I believe the first sheriff on the scene, and never gave up hope. To this day, I believe that justice would one day be found for her. In her eyes, this was a possible case of someone, like I had said, wanting to sell drugs to the family or potentially coming onto Elaine or being upset that she refused them. Kathy Sweeney of KVS News Station in Mount Carmel was able to interview Joanne Dardine in 2019 and asked her how she had managed to make it through life experiencing after experiencing such a great tragedy. Now at 84, Joanne states that I always say that I've gotten through it because I've gotten God on my side. He takes care of me and he's helped me every step of the way. She also says that it is extremely important to keep the story going, which is why I felt the need to have to talk about it today and really disturb ourselves with it. Though this is a shocking crime that you think everyone would have heard of, uh, Keith's sister, Anita Dardine Knapp, says that she honestly doubts the majority of Mount Vernon even knows who this family is and fears that... This is a story that will be forgotten as time goes on, which is why I felt the need, even though this is a very hard case to talk about, it is one that needs to be talked about. And so if you have any information, I really do hope that anyone, please, someone contact Jefferson County, Illinois Sheriff Office at 618-244-8015 or the Jefferson County Crime Stoppers at 618-242-8477. I will definitely have those linked down below because I know I talked fast and maybe not so clear. Um, But as for Keith, Elaine, Peter, and baby girl Cassie, they now rest peacefully at Graceland Cemetery near Albino, Illinois. So, yeah, guys, that is the Dardeen family unsolved case. It is extremely difficult (laughs) to read about. It was extremely difficult to talk about. I am sorry for the awkward laughs, but you know how I am. I, oh, I just can't with life sometimes. Until next time, guys, hopefully I will have Sarah with me next episode. Be sure to like, comment, subscribe, follow, I don't know, whatever you do on whatever app you are listening on. But I really do appreciate each and every one of you. And until next time, guys, stay safe. Stay weird. Bye.